Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would show yourself as glorious in your word this morning. Open our minds to know your truth. Open our eyes to see where you are at work. Open our hearts to feel the weight of sin and the wonder of grace. I pray there would be both conviction and comfort here as you have your way with us this morning. We draw near to you through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. And it's His It's in His name that we pray. Amen. We're in the middle of a series here called White Knuckled Faith. And we've been moving each week through the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. The writer of this letter has taken aim at a problem in the congregation. And he provides some sophisticated responses to help them as they work through it. And I think that the problem is basically this. Their confidence in the sufficiency of the work of Christ on their behalf has been shaken by their awareness of the sin that remains in their lives. Their confidence in the sufficiency of the work of Christ on their behalf has been shaken by their awareness of the sin that remains in their lives. In other words, they know that their past sins have been atoned for. But the question becomes, what about their present sins? And what about the sins they will likely commit in the future? Does the work of Christ cover those sins too? That's the question. Looking back at the beginning of the letter... We can assume that they believed the simple gospel message that was laid out there. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. After Jesus had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. That was pretty standard Christian teaching by that time. The Apostle Paul didn't write Hebrews, but he told people pretty much the same thing. In his first letter to Timothy, for instance, he said, There is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man, Christ Jesus, he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. These early believers believed that. If you asked them, how are you right with God? They would say, because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. Now many people today have a hard time with the thought that they need any kind of mediator at all to go between them and God. Evangelistic ministries around the country are finding that one of the, one of the biggest barriers to communicating the gospel in our society is having people acknowledge that sin actually creates a kind of barrier between a person and God. And that the barrier must be removed for a person to truly know God in a saving way. The majority of non-Christian people that I know simply don't think that they are separated from God in any way at all. 
perhaps we've made God out to be a kind of old hippie, asking everybody to make love, not war. That kind of God would certainly not be angry or offended. Or maybe we've neglected or forgotten what the letter of Hebrews will tell us later, that God is a consuming fire and we need a mediator to purify us before we dare to enter His holy presence. But that's a contemporary issue. That's, that's our issue. It wasn't their issue. The ones who received this letter, they knew all that already. They knew they needed a mediator. They believed that. They believed that mediator was Jesus Christ. And most of you here actually know the feeling that comes in the wake of confessing that belief that Jesus Christ has made you right with God. When all your sin and all your rebellion collide for the first time, With the forgiving love of God, it is nothing short of breathtaking. He loves me. He hasn't written me off. He forgives me. He has paid my debt. It's definitely new creation in action. That's what it is. And it's nothing short of life changing as well. The experience of God's forgiving love is so powerful that Carl Menninger, a 20th century American psychiatrist, said that if he could convince his patients to believe that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could walk right out the door. It's powerful to know there is a mediator who stands ready to forgive on behalf of God. But emotions are flimsy. You might walk down this aisle this morning and confess for the first time in your life that you want Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And the experience of emotion may linger for a while, but eventually, tomorrow will come. Tomorrow is whatever day it is that you realize that the Christian life is not a honeymoon and faith doesn't work like fairy dust. Sprinkle a little and everything's just fine. Doesn't work like that. Challenges still await us. Struggles still stand in our way. Temptation still lurks inside every web browser. And sin still crouches at our doors. And sometimes, you know this as well as I do, sometimes sin wins the day. It makes promises it can't keep. It twists the truth and tempts us to turn from the faith. It deceives us into thinking that something can satisfy us more than God can. What do you do after you've been deceived by sin? What do you do after you've given in to temptation? That was the troubling question for these early believers. What do we do? Well, after 2,000 years now of church history and slowly working out the implications of Christ's work on our behalf, Christians have understood more and more the deep-rooted truth that the one-time sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to cover over all our sins, past, present, and future. We know that. But these early believers, I don't think, had all that put together. It was still up in the air. And their friends and extended families would have been quick to point out that temples were in every city and priests were all over the place 
ready to offer sacrifices to any number of deities to make atonement for sin. New sins required new sacrifices. Everybody knew that. That's even how it was among the Jews. One time, every year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would walk through the temple and enter the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary where God had promised to dwell. And it's in that sacred space that the high priest would make an atonement offering to purify the people from their sins. The whole process is explained and preserved for us in Leviticus chapter 16. I don't imagine many of you read that for quiet time this week, so I've got one verse of it on the screen. I'll read it at a little bit more length. Leviticus 16. On that day, offerings of purification will be made for you, and you will be purified in the Lord's presence from all your sins. In future generations, the purification ceremony will be performed by the priest who has been anointed and ordained to serve as high priest in place of his ancestor Aaron. He will put on the holy linen garments and purify the most holy place, the tabernacle, the altar, the priests, and the entire congregation. This is a permanent law for you to purify the people of Israel from their sins, making them right with the Lord once each year. Got it? So the priest goes into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God with the offering, and when he came out, they knew they had been forgiven. God had accepted their offering. Now these Hebrews who were being addressed in this letter, they are most likely Jews who have since confessed that Jesus Christ is their Lord, the Son of God. But as Jews, you've got to recognize this, they had always had a tangible way to know themselves as truly, newly forgiven. They had the Day of Atonement ritual. But this new way of faith in the risen Jesus didn't give them anything like that to do in order to know that they had again been forgiven for their sins. Past sins, yes. New sins? Hmm. That's why I think they're on the verge of drifting away from Christ and back into solidarity with the Jewish sacrificial system. They wanted some tangible assurance of forgiveness. It's not hard to imagine. I can picture a member of that early congregation. He's in his early 40s and he's down at the Camel Club where all his Jewish friends are talking about preparations to head down to Jerusalem for the Day of Atonement. A huge celebration, something on par with New Year's Eve in Times Square. Big time for everybody. He's gone every year of his life. His family's going again. His friends are going again. He tells his friends... I'm not making the trip this year. You're not coming? What about your sin? We know you. You haven't exactly been the poster boy for purity this year. Not hard to imagine that conversation happening. What should he say? What would you say? So the writer of Hebrews needs to demonstrate and convince these believers that even though the sacrifice of Jesus is unrepeatable, it's also unbeatable. 
It does everything that the other offerings did and more. The writer needs them to understand the very difficult idea in that context that one particular sacrifice and one particular priest are sufficient for all times and all purposes and all people. It's easy now to say it 2,000 years later, but about this very idea, one scholar commented that there had never been a forever priest before. Neither the pagans nor the Jews believed in this sort of thing prior to Jesus. Revolutionary. New teaching. But that's exactly what this next section of the book of Hebrews intends to say. Now we'll only be able to cover the start of it this morning. All right, We're going to pick up and continue with it tonight. And then Jimmy will be back next week to pick up and carry it on forward. So look with me now at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It will be on the screen. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now the first thing that stands out to me in this passage, maybe it stands out to you too, is the phrase high priest. It's used two times here in this passage. Jesus has already been called a high priest in chapter 2, verse 17, and again in chapter 3, verse 1. But beginning here, we're actually turning a corner in the letter, and the role of Jesus as high priest is about to emerge front and center in the next several chapters. Now it stands out to me, I think, because we don't hear much about high priests. Matter of fact, in our kind of church, we don't even hear about priests very much. Now there is, of course, the Atlanta morning radio personality who likes to call himself the high priest of the church of the painful truth. Some of you might know who that is. But if that's your only reference for what it means to be a high priest, let me assure you that things operate very differently in the church over which Jesus Christ serves as high priest. For starters, when you call on Jesus, He won't hang up on you. That's a good start. In fact, Jesus does more than not hang up on you. He actually listens to you. Beyond listening, He sympathizes with you. Beyond just sympathizing with you, He meets you with the gift of mercy and the power of grace. And that's really what high priests were there to do all along. Under the Old Covenant, the high priest stood as the representative between God and God's people. The conduit of mercy and grace. Most particularly in the Day of Atonement ritual that we mentioned earlier. But for reasons that are going to be more fully explained in the coming chapters, the writer of the book of Hebrews says that Jesus trumps all the high priests that came before Him 
and He takes the place of all the high priests who would have come after Him. One reason from the text you'll see that Jesus carries that status is that He is the Son of God who has passed through the heavens. The image of Jesus passing through the heavens is no doubt the same picture that we saw back in chapter 2. It said, Jesus, having been made lower than the angels for a little while, has now been crowned with glory and honor. He's the Son of God. That was the the focus of that argument back there in chapter 2. Now you've got to understand, the heavens, Jesus moving through the heavens, might not mean a whole lot to us today because it's not the typical language that we use. So according to ancient thinkers... The heavens were a way of talking about everything from the sky to the stars to the domain of angels and demons all the way up, right up into God's own presence called heaven without the S on the end. Jesus, we're told, passed through the heavens. That statement is loaded with power. It means that He has passed through the dominion of death and Satan. He he triumphed over them in victory. He has passed through their grasp and where He sits at the right hand of God on high, where He is able to make intercession for all His people. The statement is loaded with power. He has gone higher than the angels and entered and entered God's own space. While that high priest in Jerusalem offered sacrifices in the temple made by human hands, Jesus has offered a sacrifice to the Father in the heavenly sanctuary. When it comes to authority, the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that we should not go anywhere other than Jesus, the Son of God. Now another reason that Jesus trumps what every other high priest can do is that He was tempted, but was without sin. It's an important point right here that follows on what was just said. What was just said in verse 14 could give you the impression that Jesus is so high, so lofty, so exalted, so wrapped up in the good things of God that He has no time for you and me. Right? If all you have is verse 14, you might have a picture of a distant God. So verse 15 comes and says, don't make that mistake. No, Jesus can sympathize because He was here among us. He faced the temptation, yet never believed the deceitfulness of sin. He was without sin. And that doesn't mean now that He looks down on us to patronize us when we stumble, it means He knows your struggle. He knows that things get complicated. And He knows that the the move that you thought would be so good actually turned out to be so bad. It's complicated. He knows that. And He sympathizes actively and passionately with you. Jesus is our advocate, not our accuser. The distinction is crucial. It's true for us this morning. Jesus stands as our advocate. And He will tomorrow morning, and the morning after that, and the morning after that, Jesus stands as our advocate, not our accuser. 1 John chapter 2 says the same thing. He says, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. The writer of Hebrews wants these believers to understand and believe that everything they're thinking they would gain from the Jewish sacrificial system has already been made available to them in a better way in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our great High Priest. He is in heaven, but He is available. He is willing and able to help us in the present time. So don't go running to another temple, another priest, because your conscience feels guilty and you want to have something tangible to do. That's the argument. Instead, if you want something to do, to know that you are truly and newly forgiven, then do what verse 16 says. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You want something to do? Something tangible? Draw near to the throne of grace and know yourself helped by the, by the power, the grace, the mercy of God. That's what we can do. Access to God is not restricted to one time, through one person, at one place, one time every year. We can call on Jesus anytime, anywhere. And when we do, He will not belittle you, or patronize you, or hang up on you. He will help you. He will meet you with the gift of mercy and the power of grace. That's why Jesus Christ is the high priest of the church of the graceful truth. It's a church with a high priest that is better than anything else on offer. Nothing else is needed. His work is sufficient forever. Let's pray. God, not on our own, but by the work of Christ on our behalf, we come to You asking You to meet us with mercy and grace in our times of need. And we all need something. Some here need salvation. Some need love. Some need forgiveness or healing. And others need hope. Whatever it is, God, whatever the needs are in this room, I ask You to work mightily to bring restoration to our lives and glory to Your name. Impress upon us what You want us to do. We will listen and we will obey. In Jesus' name, Amen.